0: Hello and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David. Today on the Big Interview, we welcome Dr. Eva Vukasic, an assistant professor in international history at Utrecht University and an expert on irregular armed groups, genocide, mass violence, and accountability for war crimes. Eva, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Now, before we talk about the current conflict in Ukraine, which after all is the main subject of our podcast, or at least at the moment, tell me about your experience working for the Special Department for War Crimes in Sarajevo and why you believe that criminal accountability is so important.
1: Right, so some 15 years ago or so, I worked as a researcher and analyst. So I'm a historian, I'm not a lawyer, and sometimes people are surprised to hear, oh, what does a historian do in war crimes trials? Actually quite a bit. Uh, So, I worked with prosecutors and investigators, and of course, other staff, to bring cases of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide to court. Uh, These are cases, of course, coming from the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which took place between 1992 and 1995. So, this is one of the wars that was sort of uh, happening in the former Yugoslavia as it was falling apart. So, I was also a part of a project to assess what the workload was. So this is kind of mid 2000s, 10 years after the war has ended. Similarly to Ukraine, the country is, it's just submerged in allegations of war crimes. There's many open case files. There are many investigations that should take place. So I was part of this effort to try to figure out what do we have on our hands as institutions that were supposed to deal with this legacy of war crimes and how to maximize results to make sure that we, with limited resources, and of course they're always limited, uh, we brought the greatest number of cases to uh, a trial. So in Bosnia and Herzegovina after the war, a lot of war crimes were prosecuted. Some were of course prosecuted here in The Hague at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. So actually in Bosnia and Herzegovina, we've had and have a lot of experience with dealing with large numbers of investigations and war crimes prosecutions. So one of the things that I'm busy with these days is trying to transfer some of that experience and some of that knowledge so that people in Ukraine don't make the same mistakes that we did. Uh, And on accountability, I think accountability is, of course, uh, important for uh, many reasons, and people who are survivors of a particular war will have their own reasons. But let me highlight these two, I guess. I, I think for me, it's fundamentally really about justice. It's just not just, that murderers, rapists, and torturers walk among us and live nice lives, go fishing, enjoy holidays with their kids after they've ruined or even ended the lives of other people. So it's fundamentally this kind of abstract idea that it's really not just for things to just go on as if nothing happened. And secondly, it's about closure for survivors, I think, Uh, for those, of course, who can achieve some closure, is to try to mend their lives and go forward. And it's needed so communities can go forward, so that people going to work don't meet their torturers in the line at the supermarket, which actually happens in Bosnia still, even with all these war crimes trials that that we've had. So these are just two, three things that come to mind. But again, if you would ask survivors, they might come up with all kinds of different reasons. But it's just something fundamentally unfair to just say, oh, you know, it's war, it happens in war. And I think it shouldn't be said. <laughs> and I think everything should be done to do the best that we can to re-establish some sense of balance and, and justice in the world to the extent that we can, of course.
0: A very bad precedent, I seem to recall, was set after the Second World War, when initially there was a, a determination to bring as many war criminals to justice as possible. And that pivoted as we know uh, and really they looked to get the big fish in the end and an awful lot of the minor players slipped through the net Uh, and later ultimately I mean it's interesting isn't it even today there's still an issue Um, the rather grim situation in Canada recently where they were uh, congratulating someone who was a Ukrainian heritage. But, you know, it it, it is fascinating, isn't it? The unwillingness or the inability to make people accountable, as you say, can have these very, very long resonances. But let's, let's be a bit more specific about the similarities between Bosnia and Ukraine in terms of the type of war crimes that are taking place. So the question is, are there many similarities? And if there are, What are the lessons that you can draw for Ukraine from your own experience working in Bosnia with regard to criminal accountability and the possibility of justice?
1: There are many similarities, I think, both in the way the conflict or the war initially developed in 2014 and then in the early stages and since the full-scale invasion. Some of the things that come to mind are arbitrary arrests, for example, people just being taken from their homes, put in garages, you know, beaten, tortured, accused of all kinds of things without any process, without any legitimate process. So torture, killings, rape and sexual violence, of course, indiscriminate use of artillery. Tar- in fact, targeting civilian objects, not not just careless use of artillery, but also targeting civilian objects specifically, uh, hospitals, schools and the like, the destruction of cultural heritage. Of course, we have today much more attention towards the harm to the environment, which was not a thing that we very much focused on in the 1990s. This is something that is, I think, quite central to some of the investigations uh, that are going on right now. What is the the harm that is done to the natural environment, to the habitat and and the consequences of that, not only for people of course, but also for nature. So there are many, many similarities. One notable exception though, is the large scale abduction of children that have been taken from Ukraine, especially, of course, the occupied areas. And this is, your listeners will probably know, the subject of an arrest warrant against Vladimir Putin and his children's rights commissioner, Maria Lvov-Belova, who were, of course, yeah, the, the arrest warrants were issued in March, uh, if I remember correctly. And this is actually the center of that investigation, the taking of, I believe, Yale University, their researchers came up with something like 6,000 names. I think the Ukrainian government has something like 20,000. So these are basically children that appear to be, at least many of them, uh, appear to have been taken from Ukraine to Russia to be kind of re-educated, so to say, to speak Russian, to adapt that culture and to sort of become Russians uh, almost. So this is something that we haven't seen uh, in the former Yugoslavia. But again, lessons are many on accountability. One of the big ones I think is to have realistic expectations, which is of course difficult because for a people and for individuals that suffer such violence, like the Ukrainians are suffering at the moment, of course you want justice for every single uh, victim that was murdered in an illegal way. But of course that, is, that will not be possible because our system, And when i say our system is kind of quote unquote you know western slash european slash whatever criminal accountability system that we commonly think of that we see in shows that we watch in films or read about in books so these kind of traditional sort of ideas about what it what a judicial institution or criminal accountability is about they are designed for crime as an exception and not crime as a rule. So when you have five murders a day, a state can deal with that. 20 murders a day, a state can deal with that. How about 500 murders a day? How about 1,000 murders a day? So it simply overloads the system. The system doesn't simply can't process all of that. So realistic expectations are really key here. The need for planning and coordination, because in Ukraine right now, many more actors are present doing documentation, investigation, civil society organization, many international consultants, donors. You know, I, I'm here in The Hague, and in The Hague, it's a little bit, it's it's almost like half of my friends and colleagues are there. So it, it, there's a lot of actors on the ground, and there's real a need for planning and coordination so that different actors don't duplicate work. Um and do the same thing, right? There's of course the need to commit resources long term, because something that we have seen in the former Yugoslavia, but we can also take it to the Second World War as an example. I mean, this is a long-term commitment. The Ukrainians are going to struggle with this legacy for decades to come. Uh, so, and and we know from other contexts and in the former Yugoslavia's way that donors and, and partners are there for a while and then they move on to something else. So it's really key. Uh, to have the commitment of states and allies to Ukraine long term in, in terms of prosecuting war crimes. So this is five, 10, 20 years, uh, potentially. So I, I really think that it's important that Ukrainians are in the driving seat here. But that we think of war crimes prosecution as a long term prospect and project instead of, you know, something that's going to be done in three to five years. That's, I mean, that's simply not not possible if we want to do it at any scale that would be sort of needed in a situation like this.
0: Now, you've written a, an excellent article, actually, Eva, um, which I have read, the need for realistic expectations for justice in Ukraine, making some of the points that you, you've just made. Now, is the real issue a question of keeping something like this in the minds of people, you know, in, in the press, as it were, in people's minds? Or, or is it And or is it is it a funding issue? Because as you also point out, this is, you know, that most of the work, frankly, is going to have to be done by the Ukrainians. So how can the international community support them?
1: Right. Well, I think first is also the very um, important realization that not even in the best case scenario, most of the cases will never be. So even if we committed all the money in the world. To This prospect for the next 50 years, because there's simply certain cases, and I know this from practice, where you hit a wall in terms of evidence that you have access to. So for example, we've had examples of women being raped by men who they couldn't identify, they weren't their neighbors, they just, for example, overheard a nickname. Oh, you know, this guy spoke like he was from Montenegro. Or for example, in Ukraine, they might say like, this is some guy who spoke like he was from this in this region in Russia, but you have no idea which unit this is. There are no other witnesses. There's no paper documents. You have no idea which unit was in town at the time, for example. So even with all the expertise, all the money, all the political will, And none of these are there long term in my experience in other cases. They're simply cases where you hit a wall. So we need to realize, first of all, kind of the limits of criminal accountability as such, that there are many cases where there's simply no path forward uh, in, in a legitimate kind of fair trials sort of way. Um, But then to the extent that we can uh, uh, prosecute and investigate um, to make sure that lessons are learned from elsewhere, just how to organize work. I mean, Ukrainians are now reporting over 100,000 potential. So these are potential war crimes, right? So these are cases that have to be investigated. We don't know yet if these are indeed crimes, but, you know, these are allegations. So, I mean, no one, no state, the richest state with many, many lawyers and many, many supporting staff won't be able to do this. A hundred thousand, it's simply not possible. So to make sure that we start saying that early on, and of course, I understand when Ukrainian leadership says things like, we're going to prosecute all war crimes, that they have to do that to a certain extent to keep the morale up because they're being bombarded. You know, they have to, they have to kind of soothe if, they're, if if we can say it like that, their own population, but it's just simply not possible. So I'm wondering if saying that is actually doing their population a disservice. We may have to make sure that there's a viable strategy. What are our criteria for selecting cases in the future? Is it gravity? Do we make sure that we have geographical representation? Do we go after kind of symbolic cases, for example, like the attack on the Mariupol Theater where hundreds of people were, you know, kind of killed and, and wounded in the rubble? So this, do we? how do we go about it, <laughs> you know? Where do we start? How do we make sure that we have a balance between different kinds of crimes that we look into detention and torture, but also rape, but also artillery attacks? So this, this requires a lot of really long long-term thinking, and that we don't satisfy ourselves with doing easy cases that are just very low perpetrators, uh, I mean, easy, not, no case is easy, I should really say. But the leadership cases tend to be more difficult. Of course, in Ukraine, we have an extra element is that everything hangs in the air and depends on the how the war is going to play out. Because of course, many of the Russians that are committing crimes are not physically available. They don't stay, they don't stick around in Ukraine waiting to be arrested. So some of the locals might be more easily accessible, but especially higher-ups and especially people who are in Russia are going to be difficult to reach. We have to make sure that the criminal code, the criminal procedure code and practices are adapted to prosecuting large-scale criminality so that vulnerable witnesses feel protected, you know, so that, that we make sure that Evidence is is collected in a way where we have a a chain of custody so that it holds up in court. So all of these things, you know, there's a million things that we have to be worrying about. But I just want to stress once again that we have to make sure that the Ukrainians are in the lead and that they are feeling ownership over the entire process, that it's not like Brits and Dutch and Americans coming in and telling them, this is how you do it, you know, sit
0: down and shut up. You mentioned 100,000 potential war crimes. I mean, it's you know, it's, it's hard really to get your head around that sort of scale in what is, after all, just 18 months of, of conflict, or at least since the full-scale invasion. We ourselves were in Ukraine not that long ago. That is the podcast, Patrick, I, and, and James, uh, and we were speaking to people in Butcher. I mean, heard at first hand, people who were eyewitnesses to war crimes, If we turn that on its head just for a moment, is there any evidence, we keep asking this question, we keep being asked this question by our listeners, that the Ukrainians or some Ukrainians, some Ukrainian servicemen have committed war crimes or something approximating to that themselves?
1: Oh, I'm sure some of them somewhere have, because it's simply impossible for a war of this scale with this many participants in this many places that absolutely no Ukrainian ever has, for example, shot a POW or prisoner of war. I'm abs- I mean, and I'm saying this as a former Yugoslav, of course, where as well, we had uh, different sides of the war committing war crimes at a different scale, Some committed them, some armies and some units much more than others. But I think it's naive to expect that you know, again, in a war that is so widespread geographically and temporally, that no one Ukrainian has committed a war crime. I think that's absolutely not possible. And I think it's going to be up to the Ukrainian state to really demonstrate the the strength of the judiciary in the aftermath to say we in fact have the capability and the, the desire and the commitment to prosecute also quote unquote your own. I mean, I grew up in Croatia. We have the exact same problems. It's much easier to prosecute Serbians or Serbs than it is to prosecute Croats, right? But I think that it's really important to send a message that our judiciary is here to, you know, prosecute without fear or favor uh, and to be committed to the ideas of justice and to send a message by prosecutor on our own, we are showing that we're not like the other side, so to say, you know? So uh, I, I am sure if, if the investigations um, are legitimate uh, and done and how they should be done, that in the years to come, something is going to come up. And again, it should not be particularly surprising.
0: Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be hearing more from Dr. Eva Vukasic about Serbian paramilitaries and the Wagner private military group. Now last year uh, Eva you published a book called Serbian Paramilitaries and the Breakup of Yugoslavia uh, with the subtitle State Connections and the Patterns of Violence. It obviously was it gave you a fascinating insight into into the sort of people who commit the type of war crimes we we've, we've been discussing but you've also worked more recently on foreign fighters in Ukraine and in particular the Wagner uh, private military company which of course has been fighting really as a proxy for the Russians are there similarities have you seen similarities between these you know if we can call them paramilitary groups in relation to Bosnia and Ukraine the type of people who join those organizations and in the way they operate.
1: Yes, absolutely. There are many similarities. Also in the early days, uh, if we remember the little green men um, in Crimea, people who are deploying without visible uh, uh, insignia, um, that just kind of appear and sort of by their presence, kind of terrorize a, a town, overtake police stations, you know, a, a municipal buildings and and such. So there are many similarities. In fact, sometimes it almost looks like there's a certain playbook that is being shared around the world. And and it really at the center of it is the the use of ostensibly independent actors to pursue the state's goals. By doing this, states, of course, outsource violence, outsource stuff that is illegal, looks nasty, and is illegitimate, and create plausible deniability, create just enough distance to be able to say, these guys are private actors, I have nothing to do with that. I mean, Milosevic was doing that, of course, uh, Putin as well, until the full-scale invasion. For years and years, Wagner was not being recognized. It was not being accepted. It was just some some people that are kind of acting uh, on their own. And that's very typical, actually. Um, it's often, as it was also in the former Yugoslavia, at the higher level, it tends to be people who are involved in state security, uh, in security s- circles already. And at the lower level, the kind of grassroots, you know, it also kind of comes comes on the wave of significant unemployment, the difficulties of young men to find their footing economically in certain places. Of course, we also know this is the same thing that was happening with Wagner, that with many people joining. I mean, there's something also kind of nudging them to to that. I was reading recently also about some Cubans joining, in fact, the Russian war effort in Ukraine and their wives are saying, well, we we have nothing. They have to go earn some money. So uh, what I think Wagner changed drastically is with the full-scale invasion, when they, when they got access to prisons, then they expanded by something like 50,000 people in a fairly small amount of time. They became, I mean, it beca- it became undeniable. Like if you have access to prison, that means that you are in some relationship with the state, right? So then it was really, I think, for Wagner, it was really kind of a different uh, sort of a story. So there are many, many uh, similarities, both between the organizations, but also in the ways that they operate. And they grew so large that it became basically undeniable. So when we saw the, you know, Wagner being recognized is when it ballooned to something that it was, I think, never actually intended to be until the Russian state really faced problems sort of in achieving their goals in Ukraine. But, yeah, so the, the similarities are really uh, numerous. Um and again, it's, it's almost as, as if some a playbook is, is being uh, sort of circulated among certain leaders around the world.
0: I mean, what's slightly mystifying about the expansion of Wagner is that on the one hand, you, of course, you've got more men, but they are in effect, particularly in the fighting uh, on the battlefield. And I know this isn't a particular area of expertise for you, Eva, but it's quite interesting the way that they use these extra guys. So effectively as cannon fodder, I mean, there's been a long tradition of that in the Russian military uh, therefore, you sort of get—I don't know—you would call them the foot soldiers, I suppose, but the you know the the really experienced ex-military guys who who would have stood a little bit further afield, and all of them coming under quite clearly the the control of the Russian state, or at least at some level. And you mentioned the sort of security connections, and presumably you are making the point that this was almost identical with the paramilitaries in Yugoslavia. I mean, they see as a modus operandi.
1: Yes, I would say so. And of course, there's also, I I, I think there's some reason for that as well. For example, many of the Yugoslav officers of the earlier generation during Yugoslavia trained uh, in in Russia. I mean, Milosevic's wife and son uh, and and daughter, I think as well at the time, fled to Russia uh, after he was indicted and stuff. So there are certain connections, of course, between these two countries. Uh, So when I saw it, I wasn't surprised.
0: Okay, now there, uh, of course, one of the really grim aspects of both groups in the nineteen nineties, and of course again in Ukraine, is the is the uh, not not just the brutality meted out to the foot soldiers as we've just described, but also the brutality meted out to you know uh, opponents in the field, so to speak, and that is the Ukrainians. So I suppose the real question here is: is that deliberate? I mean, is this a sort of form of terror that they uh, want to you know to to spread in the minds of their opponents so that, you know, it, in effect, it becomes a force multiplier. I mean, is that sort of brutality that, and therefore the likelihood that they're involved in war crimes a, a deliberate policy?
1: Right. I think one of the reasons definitely is a, a almost a branding exercise, it, how they've kind of fashioned themselves in the public imagination. I think also, of course, his influences on their opponents on the battlefield. I mean, what they've done to some of their own deserters, of course, the man that they um, attacked with a hammer and then filmed it and then made sure that people saw it. I think it's also about sending a message uh, about loyalty um, and about what happens to you if you sort of uh, turn around and try to run away. I think that's definitely uh, that's definitely part of it. And I mean, also with the same with the Serbian paramilitaries. And here, I don't want to uh, uh, sort of suggest that every single individual who joins a paramilitary is a war criminal. It, there aren't. Um, there are people who we're more sort of swept into it, so to say, and then I want—I don't want to say that this is me trying to justify it. I've, you know, I've spent a considerable number of years studying these people, and I think it's important to make sure that we don't think of membership in itself always as, you know, there's people who join paramilitaries, not only Wagner for all kinds of reasons, economic reasons being one of them, being young and gullible and stupid, being a second peer pressure, being a third. So there's different, you know, for example, for some of the the convicts that were joining, uh, I don't really think that all of them have had like a hundred percent free choice. I've read about people who are HIV positive, who were denied medicine, unless they go and join. So it's a much more complicated story than we would like to have, right? All of the guys that are joining are awful murderers, but some of them are indeed awful murderers. And that is, I think, also because often there's no vetting process. So a regular army would not accept someone who has certain problems and is known to have certain problems uh, and the like. So these units do tend to uh, have certain men, and I say men because it's almost exclusively men, both in the former Yugoslavia and the Russian slash Ukrainian kind of context, There are men who are absolutely, who enjoy violence and enjoy the um, expressive form of violence. So, the violence that is seen, heard, smelled, uh, and enjoy in in kind of sending that message, not only to the other side, so to say, but also to their kind of peers to say, this is what happens to you if you turn your back on us.
0: Can we move now to some of the foreign volunteers fighting for Ukraine? I mean, we've We met some ourselves when we were in Ukraine recently. We uh, have spoken, of course, about the various international legions fighting there. What kind of motives have they got? It's interesting. I mean, you know, as you're saying with with some of the guys joining Wagner and the other paramilitary groups, there does seem to be a sort of mixture of motives. One American volunteer we spoke to said it was really just a question of standing up for countries and people that were being bullied. And, of course, he was identifying Ukraine, quite understandably, as being bullied by Russia. I mean... Are there examples, do you think, Eva, where foreign volunteers are a force for good? I mean, you know, or or is it generally speaking to be discouraged in your view?
1: Well, I think foreign uh, fighting and mercenarism have some overlaps, but are not exactly, of course, the same thing. I think foreign volunteering can. And historically, there are examples where it has been a force for good. For example, the Spanish Civil War, when a bunch of people, Yugoslavs included, went over there to fight fascists. I think whenever one fights fascists, <laughs> that is a good thing to do. Uh, so I think there are places and times when these people can be a force uh, for good. Uh, So if the fight is noble, then yes. And of course, at the end of the day, we all decide for ourselves what we consider to be a noble fight or not. Um, But I think there are certain elements, so to say, to make sure that this process is legitimate and and legal and fair and unlikely to yield results such as massive war crimes. For example, one is uh, being seriously vetted. And integrated into regular armed forces so that we make sure that there's no sadistic maniacs, you know, being on our side, so to say, because ultimately I think what happens, and this is what the former Yugoslavia witnessed, but also Russia is and will, if you incorporate thousands of people, some of them are maniacs and sadistic people and abusive men, and then you integrate them into your security forces. And then at the end of the war, they go home. And they start beating their wives and killing their neighbors. And like, so it, it ultimately comes back to haunt you, even if you can use their bodies and their fighting to achieve whatever political goal. So I think it's really important to vet them and vet them properly so that we make sure who's coming and for what reason they're coming. I think it's important to integrate them into regular armed forces to make sure that there's a structure and that they are in a certain chain of command. There's no parallel chain of commands and, and alike. I think it's also really important that they're paid as locals, so that we make sure that their motivation is the right one. So to say, a noble fight as opposed to money, because one of the things that makes a mercenary is the, the the fact that they come for money because they earn more than a local person. And the other thing that that makes a mercenary, I think, is the fact that they are not tied to the place of fight, fighting through nationality or residency. So they're a foreign person coming primarily for money. So we have to make sure that then these foreign fighters are integrated and they are paid and, and, and vetted just like everyone else. And then ultimately also, of course, that they're punished and treated the same way that they would be in kind of regular armed forces so that they respect the, the, the rules of war. And I think if all of those conditions are met and probably some other ones as well, um, then foreign fighters can and, and can contribute to kind of a noble, a noble fight uh, and can be legitimate and legal participants um, on the battlefield.
0: Yeah, and I think actually you've underlined a, lo- a lot of the, the points that are, do pertain to foreign volunteers in Ukraine, uh, certainly from what we've heard, speaking to people both within the Ukrainian military itself and also some of these foreign volunteers, pay, generally speaking, is the same as what other people would get. They are in a proper chain of command. They do come under the, ultimately, the Ukrainian regular army. And for all of those reasons, you feel that there's a much more sort of legitimate framework within which they're operating.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, why they would be it would be more difficult to frame them as mercenaries, like some of the, I think, sort of discussion propaganda on the Russian side tends to try to portray them.
0: Okay, last question, Eva. And uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping to get a tiny, tiny little bit of optimism from you about this. You you've spoken uh, very sensibly and and very revealingly about the l- unlikelihood that more than a fraction of war crimes will ever be brought to justice. But it is also uh, nice to think that some of the big fish will be caught up in the net eventually, and of course, I'm referring chiefly to the really big fish, uh, Putin himself. When we did a program on the on the actual uh, charges in March, which you referred to earlier, uh, and we were spoke spoke to a couple of experts in the Hague who said that they did believe one day he would be brought to justice. What, what's your feeling about that?
1: Yeah, I think I mean, here, of course, I'm also in The Hague and it's really the conversation that has been pretty much sucking the oxygen out of every other car. Like it's really the one thing uh, that the things that we tend to to talk about. And this is, you know, also, of course, sometimes legitimately criticized by people who work on other conflicts by saying that "Hmm, there's there's a disbalance here in attention. And I think there's something to be said about that. But coming to the issue of Putin, of course, and and, and others. I think, first of all, one needs to keep at least the slightest of the slightest of hopes. Otherwise, you know, what are we all doing, uh, I guess? So um, if you're working in this kind of justice and accountability space, but just a, maybe a small anecdote to for, for you and your, your listeners. When I initially came to The Hague, so this was the late 2000s, and at the time, of course, uh, Radovan Karadzic and Radko Mladic, bo- both high-ranking Bosnian Serb leaders, military and civilian, have been fugitives for something like 15 years. So I come to The Hague. At that moment, no one thinks that they are going to be caught. The ICTY, the Yugoslavia Tribunal, is kind of slowly going towards a closure, pretty much behind the scenes. Everyone is like, this is never going to happen. And you know what? And then it happens. In 2008 and 2011, both of them are uh, caught after strong long-term pressure. Um, When they arrived, we thought oh they're you know they're kind of old who knows if they're going to make it through uh, the trial and they do both of them 5 years of trial for both of them then they make it through the appeal and now they're both serving lifelong sentences for the crimes that they committed and they were sentenced in a fair trial where they both got good lawyers that uh, the tribunal also paid for so even at the lowest of the low, kind of when you feel really uh, desperate about these things, I think things um, can move in ways that are unexpected, and something that doesn't make sense today maybe you know in two or three days sort of changes direction. So, I think it's important to do the hard work, collect evidence, keep our nose to the ground, to the hard work, um, and and sort of make sure that these issues are not forgotten. The Syrians are doing the same now because the Syrian issue is sort of fallen off the agenda. So they keep talking about it as they, as they should, because I think that's the one prerequisite. So I think the chances of Putin actually standing trial are not very high, but they're there. And as I said, Karadzic and Mladic were once sort of also thought that they would never be prosecuted, and then they were. So that's, what, that's, that's my uh, answer, answer to that question. I, I hope it does provide that uh, little bit of hope <laughs> that you were hoping for.
0: Thanks so much, Ivo. It's been fascinating talking to you.
1: Thank you so much for the invite, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Well, that was fascinating, and in particular for me, because I actually spent a little bit of time in Bosnia in the early 1990s, traveling through Croatia into Bosnia itself. And I was aware, both first firsthand, but also by speaking to a lot of people about a lot of the war crimes that were being committed there. But what I found particularly striking about what Eva had to say is the connection between Wagner and the paramilitaries in Bosnia in the 1990s, particularly the Serbian paramilitaries, the sort of people who join up, the connections they have with the state, the fact that they are, you know, used for plausible deniability, uh, and ultimately that they set themselves up as this kind of brutal regime that demands absolute loyalty, and if you don't give it to them, there's going to be trouble. The parallels are chilling, but it is, I think, ultimately quite uplifting that Eva made the point that some of the perpetrators of those war crimes, certainly the leaders like Mladic and Karadzic, were eventually brought to justice. So who knows? We may one day see the same for some of the Russian leaders. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday when Patrick will be back and we'll be discussing the latest news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.